Good morning to each of you. Uh, pleasure to be with you as always and encourage you now to turn with me in God's Word to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. I have to say, uh, this psalm gave me a whole lot of trouble uh, this past week. Uh, I had difficulty uh, in understanding the meaning of several phrases. This will become apparent in a few moments. And difficulty in unraveling the relationship between uh, several phrases. It gave me so much trouble, uh, in fact, that I was still at it uh, last night. There are various implications, therefore. Uh, One of the most obvious is this. Your sermon notes are redundant. Uh, They are going to be semi-useless this morning. Uh, This is embarrassing. Arthur and Rosetta are back. Arthur weighs, uh, places great weight on those sermon notes, and my horror at not having sermon notes ready for Arthur upon his return. But if you need notes, if you need to be able to see something, visualize something, I encourage you to write three things. Number one, write God's providence, verse one. That's the first thing. It will serve as a, it will serve as a coat hanger to organize our closet, so to speak. Uh, On the second line, write example number one, verse two, a second coat hanger. And then thirdly, write example number two, verses three, four, and five. And so you just entered a messy closet, Psalm 127, and those are three coat hangers which will help us organize and clean it up a little bit and really understand what the psalmist is saying and apply what he is saying accurately and faithfully this day. Now, before we get to those three headings, I want to make five introductory remarks that will set the stage uh, for what's coming. Five introductory remarks, comments, that will set us down the right path. The first remark is this. As we approach this psalm, we need to set aside our presuppositions. Actually, I I use the first person plural. Maybe you don't have to, but I had to. I'm thinking in particular of verse 4, where the psalmist says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Into verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Uh, We use that expression, at least I use that expression in verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. Uh, we use that normally in reference to, to a couple who have a lot of children. You sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You've got a quiver full there. And uh, some will even use that text in support of the fact that we should have as many children as we possibly can. That may or may not be verifiable elsewhere in Scripture, but it's not what this Scripture is teaching. And I had a really tough time. I had a really tough time because I came to this text with a presupposition. Because I had heard that phrase and used that phrase a certain way on so many times, it was difficult for me to hear anything else until I actually got into the text as a whole and got into the chapter as a whole and understood the relationship between the thoughts and the prevailing thought flow throughout the entire psalm. So that's the first introductory remark. And uh, we need to be clear on that. We must lay aside, if we're going to make good sense of this psalm and what Solomon, the author, is declaring, 
we must set aside our presuppositions. Second remark is this. We need to realize what this psalm isn't about. Uh, That may seem odd, what this psalm isn't about. But it is significant because it points to something quite revealing. Simply this, a God's interest in everyday, ordinary life. This psalm is not about solving great theological puzzles. It is not about probing the intricacies of complex doctrines. It is not about the pursuit, pursuing mountaintop experiences. It is not about traversing deep oceans and high mountains to proclaim the gospel to the lost. It is not about enduring unspeakable and unthinkable hardships. It is not about engaging in great feats of spiritual discipline. It is not about attending conferences where thousands sing with one rapturous voice. It isn't about serving in some cutting-edge ministry. It isn't about surrendering all for the kingdom. It isn't about the seeming, it is about the seemingly ordinary mundane and trivial in a word. This psalm is about life. This psalm is about real life. And what makes it so valuable is it gives us a small glimpse of God's perspective of and assessment of real life. I hope that speaks to you. Because you may have found yourself in this past week trapped in what you perceive to be the mundane. What you value is insignificant. What you often consider as being trivial, real life. And you yearn for all these great things. You yearn for something different, something new, something sensational. Wake up, you crazy idealist, and start living life. Real life. And we will see that this psalm focuses on security, the theme of security. It focuses on the theme of family. And it focuses on the theme of work. And our almighty God has a perspective on these things. And his perspective is paradigm shifting. If only we will give attention. It's a second introductory remark. We need to realize what this psalm isn't about. Third remark is this. We need to identify Solomon's audience. For whom? To whom is he writing? Look at the second verse. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Notice the next phrase right at the end of verse 2. For he, that is God, the Lord, gives to whom? His beloved sleep. This psalm, as a matter of fact, the entire word of God is penned by the Spirit of God using human authors, penned for God's beloved. Who is God's beloved? Listen to this biblical answer carefully. God's beloved is the Lord Jesus Christ and all who are one with His beloved. If you are a Christian, that means of necessity that you are in union with Jesus Christ. 
Two marriage bonds knit you together with him. He has taken hold of you by the Holy Spirit, and you have taken hold of him by faith, whereby you become one with him in God's sight. Therefore, you become in Christ God's beloved. And so in John 13, as we enter that major section in John's gospel account, the upper room discourse, we have these beautiful words, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Two precious components to that statement. Number one, having loved his own who were in the world. That is ownership by divine covenant. All whom the Father has given to me, come to me. It is the doctrine of election. That in God's eternal eye, mindset, he has a people. And he has a people whom by covenant he has given to his son. A people for whom the Lord Jesus lived a perfect life. A people for whom the Lord Jesus died a satisfactory, substitutionary death. Having loved his own, his beloved, who were in the world. Second component. He loved them to the end. That is to the fullest, to the utmost at Calvary's cross where he bore the penalty for their sin, where he broke the power of their sin. His love is full. His love is complete. His love is unchanging. And his love is unwavering. Says John Owen, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. Christian, That phrase, beloved, should stop you dead in your tracks. What it means to be God's beloved. What it means to be the apple of His eye. What it means to be one with His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God is for you. The promises are for you. The wonderful grace and mercy and assurance which flows from His grace and mercy and faithfulness. These things are for you. And this psalm and what Solomon imparts here in his wisdom is for you. A fourth introductory remark is this. We need to remember who God is. Go back to Psalm 121. We were here a couple of months ago. And in this psalm, uh, the psalmist gives us a Oh, just a beautiful, tremendous, full picture of God in His glory. And he makes that statement at the end of verse 2 in reference to the Lord. He made heaven and earth. He is the maker. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And then he draws out three implications concerning this God, our God, and our relationship with Him. The first is this, he made heaven and earth. He does not sleep. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He never takes a nap. He is never caught off guard. And he watches over and keeps with a holy jealousy 
those who belong to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second implication is this. He made heaven and earth. He does not leave. Verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. He's like a shadow. We can't get rid of him. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And the third implication, he is the maker of heaven and earth. He does not change. Verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Never lose sight of the God of whom the psalmist is speaking. The God whom the psalmist has constantly in view before him. Whether it be David, Solomon, Moses, some other unnamed psalmist, as they pen these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and in particular as they penned these songs, which became known subsequently as the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Degree, they have this overarching purpose ever before them. It is to point us heavenward. And it is to point us to our God and subsequently for us to bask in the reality, the full reality of who our God is. That's the fourth remark. We need to remember who he is. And the fifth introductory remark is this. We need to recognize the Psalms' unifying theme. There is a unifying theme. And this is what stumped me uh, this past week. This is where I had such difficulty this past week. Some, as they have read this psalm, have suggested it's awfully disjointed. And so they've concluded what we have here are two or three precious truths, thoughts, which Solomon has just sort of packed together like he does in the book of Proverbs. Disjointed, unrelated, I strongly disagree. There is most certainly, a unifying theme which makes the psalm coherent as a whole. And we need to interpret and apply the individual parts in light of the whole. Here it is, its entire message, its unifying theme. In light of God's all-encompassing providence, we have absolutely no reason to worry. That is the unifying theme in the psalm. You know, it would be entirely possible, I don't think this was the case, but it would, be, it would have been entirely possible in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount from verse 25 through 34, it would have been entirely impossible for the Lord Jesus, Jesus to have preached that segment, that section, that portion of the Sermon on the Mount based on this psalm. Three times in those verses, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Jesus utters a commandment. Do you remember what it is? Do not be anxious. It's a commandment, brothers and sisters. Do not be anxious. Let me repeat it. It is a commandment. Do not be anxious. That is the message. That is the intent. That is the thrust of this psalm, Psalm 127. I have read these words before, maybe two or three times here at Grace Community Church. I'm going to continue to refer to them until I come up with something better, find something better, or you find something better and pass it on to me. They're the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to what he writes. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, 
His thought is being controlled by something else. Let me repeat that. The trouble with the person of little faith is that something is controlling his thought. Instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he is going round and round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. And so if you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you exactly what you have been doing. You have been going around in circles. You have been going over the same old miserable details about some person. Or you have been going over the same old miserable details about some thing, event, circumstance, condition. Lloyd-Jones adds, that, my friend, is not thought. That is the absence of thought. It is a failure to think. That means that something else is controlling your thought and governing it. And it leads to that wretched, unhappy state called worry. That is the theme, the unifying theme of this psalm. The message is simple. That in the light of God's all-encompassing providence, we have absolutely no reason to worry. We have no excuse for worrying. Now those three headings I gave you earlier, they come into view. We enter into the closet, Psalm 127, and I'm going to take each of these three hangers out of the closet and look at them, and we'll see this unifying theme then as it comes together. And so the first was this, God's providence. We have it in verse 1. Notice two conditional clauses. That's what Solomon uses here. Conditional clause number one, right at the outset of the verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Conditional clause number two. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The underlying principle, the bedrock, is the same. He is pointing us to the providence of God. He is forcing us to bring all human effort, to to prostrate all human effort before the throne of God's grace. And he draws this out. How does he do it? He does it through two conditional clauses, pointing us to two particular specific areas in life. The first has to do with God's provision. The second has to do with God's protection. And so the first conditional clause, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so the house, Solomon might have been thinking of the, of, of the temple of God. He might have been thinking of the city of Jerusalem. He might have been thinking of the entire kingdom of Israel. Far more likely, he's simply thinking of his own house. And he's pointing to something here with which we can all relate, with which we can all empathize. That when it comes to building a home, providing for ourselves, providing for our family, unless the Lord builds it, it is fruitless. It is pointless. It is vain. Solomon is not disparaging the need for hard work. We toil. We labor. We work hard. We plan, we use architects, we prepare, we save, we do all of these things. His point is simply this, in the final analysis, the mortar will not hold. The bricks will not stay in place. The electricity will not turn on. The edifice will not stand. Apart from what? 
the providence of God. He is pointing us to this great truth that God is the cause of all things. The first cause of all things. He works with all things, thereby causing them to function exactly, precisely as they do. He works with all things, whereby all things meet the end, the objective, for which they were intended in accordance with His infinite wisdom. It comes, it comes true, it rings true when it comes to basic provisions and necessities in life. God is on His throne. And you can work as hard as you want. You can burn the candle from both ends. You can stay up all night. You can do everything right. You can provide, 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 provide. But never lose sight of the overruling, overarching providence of God. The second statement, conditional clause, moves us from provision into the realm of protection. But again, the foundation is the same, the providence of God. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The watchman, the guard, he needs to stay awake. He needs to be vigilant. He must remain watchful. He must do what he has been tasked to do. But understand, he can be as watchful as he possibly can. He can stay awake all night and be extremely vigilant and extremely good and efficient at his job. But unless the Lord is watching over the city, that man stays awake in vain. You can have the latest missile system. You can have all the advanced warning systems in the world. You can have battleships and tanks and planes, or you think in terms of the home. You can have the latest security equipment installed in your house. Unless the Lord is protecting, it is an exercise in futility. That is the psalmist's point. He is pointing us back to the start. He is pointing us, forcing us in our perspective back to the first cause of all things. That apart from God moving, apart from God working, apart from God effecting, there is absolutely nothing we can do to make provision for ourselves and there is absolutely nothing we can do to protect ourselves. He is bringing, Solomon is bringing all human effort and forcing us to prostrate all human effort before the throne of the almighty, all-ruling providence of God. That's what he does in verse 1. That's his bedrock. That's his foundation. And then all he does from there is he illustrates it. And so in verse 2, he gives us example number 1. And in verses 3 through 5, he gives us example number 2. Example number 1 takes us back to the first conditional clause in verse 1. The second example in verses 3 through 5 takes us back to the second conditional clause in verse 1. Do you see how it all fits together? And so the first conditional clause in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so we look to God, His providence, when it comes to provision. He now illustrates it, gives us an example of that truth in the second verse. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So again, God's providence means we look to him for provision. Do we work hard? Yes, we do. We're as diligent as the ant, Solomon teaches us elsewhere. Do we plan and prepare? We most certainly do. Do we use the good old Scottish common sense that God has given us? Yes, we do. 
Do we employ means, secondary means? We most certainly do. But the point is this. You can get up as early as you want. You can go to bed as late as you want. You can experience all the anxiety and turmoil and worry that you want. But ultimately, it is God who must bless the labor of our hands. Ultimately, we are dependent upon His providence. When we understand that, what's the very last statement in verse 2? For He gives to His beloved sleep. This one stumped me all week. It's true. God does give to His beloved sleep. It's true. Sleep is a precious gift bestowed by a loving creator upon the creature. That is an accurate translation of the Hebrew. But it is possible to translate the Hebrew in a different way. The New American Standard Version. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The New American Standard Version translates it as follows. For the Lord gives to his beloved even in his sleep. I think that captures the thought. There is a clause. Look at verse 2. Follow the thought flow. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Notice the clause. For, because, he gives to his beloved sleep. Doesn't make much sense. I think the NASV, the translators, have done a much better job. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You work as hard as you want. And lay, you lay your head on your pillow at night and you understand this, that all blessing, every blessing comes from God alone. He is the author of all things and he bestows things as he sees fit in accordance with his perfect will. By his providence, he controls and he sustains everything and he prospers your work. He is able to give even while we are sleeping. Now understand the context. This is an agrarian society. These people are what? They're farmers. Starting, penny starting to drop. They're farmers. And so these are men and women who live off the land, on the land, 24-7, day after day after day after day. And they sow their seed. And they irrigate their, their land, their, their, their farm. And they watch on bated breath as the crop appears. And they... They fight off pests, and they, they just sit all anxious, filled, lest some sort of disease strikes down their crop. And, and thankfully, as the rains come and the sun shines and the plant grows, it all germinates, it begins to bloom, and then they reap what? A wonderful harvest. Who has ultimately caused that bountiful harvest? It is God. He is able to give to His beloved, even in their sleep. And so that is the illustration of that wonderful truth. The providence of God. We look to His providence. And in looking, we rest and rely upon Him for provision. The second example, we're now in verses 3, 4, and 5. It builds on the second conditional clause back in verse 1. Follow along as I read it again. Unless the Lord watches over the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. So that's the second conditional clause. Solomon teaches us that God's providence means we look to Him not only for provision, we look to Him for protection. And he now gives a very apt illustration in that day, that culture, that society of how this plays out. 
And he says two things concerning children in verse 3. Behold, pay attention, take notice. Behold, here's number one. Children are a heritage from the Lord. So that's the first truth concerning children. They are a heritage or an inheritance given from God to us. Second truth is this. They are the fruit of the womb, a reward. So they are a heritage and they are a reward. Now, admittedly, we could jump all over that verse. And, and, and to a certain degree, we have, we, we're, we're right to do this. We can jump over that verse and we can extract from it several important pers- principles when it comes to parenting. I did that a few days ago. I simply extracted four. Here they are. Number one, we must view our children as a trust for which we'll give an account. That's, that's implied there, isn't it? They're a heritage from the Lord. They're the fruit of the womb, a reward. That means necessarily we must view our children as a stewardship. We view them as a trust for which we'll give an account. It implies, secondly, we must protect them and provide for them while they're young. They're entrusted to us. It's our calling, our mandate, our responsibility to watch over and provide for them. Number three, we must seek to raise our children in the, fruit of, in the, in the fear of the Lord. An inheritance, a reward given by God to us. We have a calling and a duty and a responsibility in consequence to raise them in the fear of the Lord. The fourth principle is this. We must surrender them, however painful. We must surrender our children uncomplainingly when God calls them home. He has given them to us. And He reserves the divine right to call them home. Those are hard principles, some of them. But they are principles, nevertheless, that we extract and we can build on this verse. But I want you to get this. It's not the main point of the text. It's not the text. It's not where Solomon is going here. It's not what he means in light of the whole and this celebration and wonderful articulation of the providence of God and how it applies to these two spheres of provision and protection. He's made the point. Yes, our children are our heritage. Yes, our children are the fruit of the womb, a reward. So what? He explains what he has in mind here in verse 4. Like arrows. Now we get this military scene. In the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Oh, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. That is not a statement to rip in isolation out of its context. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What does he have in view? He is waxing eloquent on the providence of God and how God by his providence provides for us. He blesses even while we sleep. Particularly true, real, vivid in an agriculturally based society. And he's teaching that by God's providence, he protects us. How? In the children he has given to us. That's lost on us in our society because of the number of safety and social nets we have. That was everything in this society. To be caught childless, alone, while aging, opened the man, exposed the woman to all sorts of griefs and hardships. And Solomon is celebrating the fact that it is God by his providence who gives these children. 
And as the couple grows and ages and is no longer to get, able to get out there and till the soil and do that hard work, as perhaps the, the husband dies or perhaps disease afflicts and affliction lays them low, God protects them. How? Through their children. Even to the point where he, he develops this kind of military mindset. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. They will fight your battles for you. That's his point. And when you gather in the gate of the city, the gate of the city was a place of judgment where people gathered if they had disputes, points of contention, which could often quickly degenerate into what? Violence. Oh, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of children. Why? Because he will not stand alone in the gate. Hockey coach used to instill in us when we were younger kids, I want you to hit him and hit him as a pack. He wanted to develop a pack mentality. You hit them as a pack. I'm sure it's the same in football. They want you to tackle as a pack. That's what Solomon is celebrating here. You've got a pack. Oh, the man, 80 years of age, no longer able to work in the field, stands alone in the gate when an enemy begins to attack. That man, what hope does he have? Oh, but the man who has a quiverful. Oh, the man who can turn and see three daughters, seven sons. The man who stands there in a pack. Oh, he is blessed. Understand that is the work of the Lord. That's Solomon's point. Understand that is God's providence in action. Understand that God, by his providence, he provides for his own. And God, by his providence, he protects his own. That is the unifying theme. We build a bridge. We bring it up now into the 20, what are we, in the 21st century? And we understand that God reigns as supreme now as He ever has. That God is enthroned in the heavens. That God does accomplish His good and perfect purposes and will among men. That God has taken a people as His own through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has promised that He will work all things together for their good. That is their growth in holiness, their sanctification. And we have this wonderful assurance as His beloved, that by His divine providence, His rule, unmatched rule, unchallenged reign, that in ways perhaps at times imperceptible to us, beyond our perception or understanding, He provides for His own. Meaning what? We can rest. There is no need for what? Worry. And He will protect His own. Meaning what? There is no need for anxiety. It brings peace. Now I want to get up close and personal. I want to jump right into your living room. And here's how I'm going to do it. I want to bring this lesson home, home to bear. Unknown author, I can't remember who penned it. Penetrating words. Worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. I won't ask for a show of hands. I don't need to because I know we all sin in this regard. At times, finding ourselves in the grasp, the clutches of worry, and it consumes us. When it grips us, it will not let go. It just will not let go. It shakes us ferociously. It captivates our thoughts. It overruns our emotions. 
In so doing, it dampens our joy and disrupts our peace. It wraps its tentacles around our souls, tightening its grip until it saps us of all strength. It keeps us from eating. It keeps us from sleeping. It prevents us from deriving pleasure from those good gifts which God has so graciously lavished upon us. It doesn't stop there. It hinders. When it has us in its clutches, we are not, despite what we might think, we are not much fun to be around. It strains the relationship between husband and wife, between parent and child, between brother and sister. It strains the relationship between believers. On top of that, it makes us so inward-looking that it renders us useless when it comes to serving others. It puts us on edge. It makes us inattentive, unresponsive, and unsympathetic. There's more. It deceives. It promises to resolve what troubles us. It promises to rectify what vexes us. Yet it never contributes one iota to resolving any of our problems. It does not give any sound advice. It does not contribute any deep insight. It does not render any peace or comfort. It takes all our time and produces nothing. It takes all our energy and renders nothing. It takes and takes and takes and takes takes, giving nothing in return. Again, the Lord Jesus could very well have used Psalm 127 in the Sermon on the Mount when he uttered that commandment because he pointed to the same thing, the overruling, overarching, supreme, all-encompassing providence of God when he commanded, do not be anxious. He knows we're slow learners, so he repeated it. Do not be anxious. And just in case we were napping through the first times, he repeats it a third time. Do not be anxious. We must understand who God is. And as Christians, we must understand our relationship to him. We must understand, yes, in the words of the Lord Jesus, that he has numbered the hairs upon our head. That not one sparrow, one silly little bird falls apart from the overruling sovereignty of God. And when we are fixed, feet firmly planted upon the unchanging, unwavering providence of God and what it means when it comes to provision and what it means when it comes to protection, we find what? Oh, comfort for the soul. We find peace for the soul. We find a quiet and most certain rest for the soul. Our Heavenly Father, as always, we beg your help because we are so quick to wander and so distracted in our thinking and our feeling. And so pray that by your word, as we've read it, as we've wrestled with it, as we've heard it, uh, proclaimed and expounded and applied, that by your spirit, you will give us that missing element, which is illumination. That you would help us to grasp it, help us to understand it, help us to orient our lives by your word. We do worship you this day. We declare that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the one who dwells in unapproachable light. You are the one who no man has seen nor can see. You are the one who has declared the end from the beginning. You are the one who performs your will in the heavens above and on the earth below. Help us to believe it. Help us to live like it. And we do so for the honor of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and the furtherance of his kingdom. In his precious name we pray. Amen.